Section six of the Moon Master by Charles Diffin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part six. The onrushing horde was upon them while the tall man was still brushing his hand over weary eyes, and Jerry, for the moment, had the fighting to himself. No time for anything but parry and strike. He caught one white face on the jaw. The man went bodily through the air. Jerry landed again and again. His weapons were his fists, and they did fearful execution, and he knew at length that he was not alone. The long arms of the inventor tore a sword from an upraised hand. Its owner was thrown, as Jerry had thrown one previously, to catapult among its fellows. They were clear for an instant. Back to the wall, shouted Jerry. He had time and room to reach for his pistol, and he drew it quickly from its holster. They backed hastily to the protection of the stone wall. There were scores upon scores of copper-clad figures that followed them, held out of reach. With a flashing of gold, the head priest himself sprang to urge on his men. Ready, said Jerry. I wish you had a gun. Here, take this. He handed his companion a long-bladed knife, then turned to aim his pistol with steady hand at the oncoming figure in golden robes. The priest stopped for a brief scrutiny of this new menace, then screamed out an order and hurled himself into the sheltering press of men. Jerry fired into the whirl of bodies. The roar of the forty-five tore like a battery of siege guns throughout the great room. But the creatures before them were fighting now in an insane frenzy. Their bodies pressed the two men to the wall. Jerry fired again, and the fall of a limp, golden-robed body gave him a thrill of delight. The inventor was holding a white body as a shield, while he thrust past it incessantly with a red blade. There were huddled figures before them that lay quiet or crept painfully away. The body of the head priest was being carried off. The dark mouth of a passage had impressed itself upon Jerry. He remembered it now. It offered a means of escape. Off to your right, he said. Work off to your right. There's a hole in the wall. They fought off the struggling eruption of bodies that drove at them. Jerry was saving his ammunition. But once more he fired as a sword was falling over Winslow's head. He drove strongly with his left and beat at the white skulls with the butt of the gun gripped in his other hand. The passage was suddenly behind them. One last stand against the screaming, frothing faces, and they backed, panting, into the sheltering dark. Jerry stopped and took Winslow by the arm. "'Are you hurt?' he demanded. The inventor was too breathless for reply. "'Nothing much,' he panted after a moment. "'One got me along the cheek. You shot him just in time. How about you?' Okay was the assurance, but man, I've been hammered. What a peach of a fight, he added. But now what? Winslow laughed mirthlessly in the dark. This looks like a one-way street, he said. We can't go back. Say, he demanded, with sudden dim recollection. I remember something of a dream, a ghastly sort of thing. I was, I was... Where was I when you collared me? Where was I headed? 
for something too damnable for us to imagine, Jerry stated emphatically. They were walking as rapidly as they dared through the dark passage. There were high-pitched voices from the rear. From somewhere ahead came the sound of running water. Too damnable to imagine, he repeated, but we'll hunt this vile thing out if we get a chance, and we'll slaughter. The words ended in a startled exclamation as the ground fell beneath their feet. They pitched headlong into nothingness. There was water in Jerry's face as he fell. A torrent engulfed him as he struck into it, pouring in from a lower passageway to plunge straight down the shaft. The roaring crash of water tore madly at his body. His arm was shot through with stabbing pain as Winslow's falling body was torn from his grasp. He was conscious only of his bursting lungs when he came to the surface from the depths into which he had plunged. With one arm he swam weakly, the other trailing at his side, while he gulped greedily at the air. A voice came hoarsely from a distance. Foster it called, Jerry. Where are you, Jerry? Ah, good air in his lungs. He could swim more strongly now. He managed to gasp and answer. Here, Winslow, over here. There was a splashing in response to his voice. He heard it over the noise of the waters. He had been swept away from the cataract. A hand was upon him in the dark. Hurt asked the welcome voice. Can you swim, Jerry? A little. One arm's working. The hands fumbled over him quickly, and his good arm was drawn over the other's back. Hang on, Winslow told him. I can swim. I'm half fish. Jerry clung to the folds of the coat. He was light in the water. He felt riding high, and the man beside him was swimming with strong strokes. He released his hold on the other as he felt strength ebbing back into his body. I can paddle, he said, but stick around. Where are we going? In a circle, probably, was the reply, though I'm trying to hold a straight course. How big is this lake, I wonder? They swam slowly, saving their strength, but it was a time that seemed like endless hours before the answer to Winslow's question was found. Jerry was fighting weakly, exhausted, and the hand supporting him was failing when they felt sharp rocks against their dragging feet. The hand that had held him still clung tightly to his shoulders as they struggled upward and fell together where great rocks gave safety in the darkness. In his arm, the sharp pain had dwindled to numbness. Jerry Foster asked only for sleep. There was light about him when he awoke. In his stupor, he had found again the surroundings he knew so well, the clash and clatter of a distant city, the roaring traffic signals, and glowing lights. He came slowly back to unwelcome reality. The light was there, but it shone in luminous lines along the wall to illumine the hateful familiarity of the honeycombed rock that composed the moon. It showed, too, a familiar figure, breathing heavily where it lay on the far side of the small room. Winslow's face was pale in the dull light, and his eyes were closed. He was on a thick pallet of soft fibers, and across his body a cloth was spread, shot through with gold in strange designs. Jerry Foster threw aside a robe of the same material that covered him. 
He stifled an involuntary word as a twinge of pain shot through his arm, then crossed noiselessly to shake softly at the shoulder of the sleeping man. Winslow, too, came slowly from his sleep of complete exhaustion, but his eyes were clear when they opened. "'Where are we?' he began a question, but Jerry's hand was pressed quickly against his lips. They stared slowly about. The room that held them was in the natural rock, but whether hewn out by hands or a natural formation, they could not tell. The rock was rotten with perforations, through which air flowed in a cool stream. Jerry came softly to his feet to feel cautiously of the glowing, luminous mounds along the wall. They were spread upon a ledge. The light was cold to his touch, the material like fine soil in his hands. Fluorescent, whispered Winslow. Calcium sulfide, possibly. I saw them spreading it above the ground in the sun. It absorbs light, and it gives it off slowly. Jerry nodded. The source of the endless glowing lines had been puzzling to him. Their whispers ceased at a sound beyond a doorway. In the opening, a figure appeared, tall and erect, the figure of a girl. Her face was white like the others of these, whose lives were lived below the surface. But there was a kindly softness in the eyes, a refinement and intelligence of no low order, that contrasted with the cold eyes of the warriors and the priests. Not beautiful, perhaps, by earth standards, yet it required no straining of chivalry on Jerry's part to find her human and lovely. In silence, the men stood staring. Then Foster, with unconscious gentleness, made a revealing gesture. This woman, this girl, had saved them. He knew it without words, and he was wordless to reply. He dropped swiftly to his knees and pressed a bit of the golden robe against his lips. A flush of scarlet swept across the white face and receded. The hand dropped from its startled poise and rested gently, questioningly, on the brown head bent before her. She murmured unintelligible words in a guarded voice as Jerry arose. Marahana, she said, and touched her breast lightly. Marahana. Her head was erect, the whole attitude imperious, commanding. She questioned them with swift, liquid words. The men shook their heads in utter incomprehension. Again she spoke, and again they shook their heads. Jerry felt foolish and dumb. He took his turn at questioning, and this time, with a trace of a smile, it was the girl's turn to shake her head. She had mastered one sign at least. Pointing toward the great hall, they knew was somewhere above, she reenacted the scene there. She evidently knew what had transpired, and now Jerry nodded in confirmation. That she approved of the part they had played was evident. Now she questioned whence they had come. She pointed down, and her fluttering hands and graceful posture spoke eloquently. She showed them more than a trace of fear, too, as she marked them coming from the depths. Jerry shook his head in vehement denial. He pointed above, spread his hands wide. 
tried as best as he could to indicate vast distance beyond. She stared wide-eyed, then in her turn knelt as if before a god. She thinks we have come down from the sun, Winslow surmised. Well, let it go at that. But Jerry Foster was embarrassed in the strange role of a god. He raised the humbled, kneeling young woman to her feet. He pointed to her gold-clad figure and repeated the name she had given. Marahana, he said, Marahana. Then, placing his hand on his companion, he repeated, Winslow, Winslow. And, pointing to himself, he completed the introduction with, Foster, Jerry, Jerry Foster. The pale lips formed themselves slowly to the strange and unaccustomed sounds. Cherry, she repeated, and smiled in comprehension. Cherry. This was the first of many lessons, and it was amazing to both men how rapidly they learned to get their thoughts across. In turn, they learned to read the messages that the slim hands and graceful, undulating body conveyed. Even words were linked one by one with their indicated objects and meanings. One syllable the girl used only in a hushed and awe-stricken voice. It was, O-Ong, that she whispered, while her eyes filled with terror and dread, and they knew this for the name of the horror that awaited in the black center of that unholy place where the pathway of light ascended. It was later that they learned to read hatred as well as sheer terror in the emotions that the word O-Ong aroused. The first lesson ended in soft exclamation from the girl. She withdrew, to return in a moment with a beaker of hammered gold, filled with cold water. In her hands, too, were strange fruits and branches of fungus. She ate bits of them to show they were food. And Jerry, as he watched her, was aware that he was famished. But the two men ate sparingly at first of the strange food. It was tasteless, they found, except for an elusive flavor. But the reception of the food in their gnawing stomachs was satisfactory. Their strength was returning, and with it came hope of release. The moon people, evidently, were not altogether villainous. Thank you, said Jerry in a normal tone. That was... White fingers trembled against his lips to enforce silence. End of Part 6